Well, once again, we're very glad that you're here today. Thank you so much for coming. And, um, and we're in the middle of crosstalk. Actually, you're like, yeah, I guess we're kind of in the middle of crosstalk. And what we're looking at is, is seven times on the cross, Jesus spoke. And we're taking some words each week of the seven that he spoke and sharing. And we're learning, if you will, lessons from the cross. And so that's what we want to continue today, Lessons from the Cross. And the words today are perhaps some of the most hopeful and encouraging and wonderful words to the to human ear that can be heard. Now, I bet, if I, if I bet, that each one of you have had someone knock on your door or ring the doorbell. Isn't that right? Sometimes. Now, here's what it is. If you happen to be expecting someone, let's say, let's say it's Christmas time, and, and perhaps the kids are coming home for Christmas, or perhaps Grandma or Grandpa's coming home for, for, to your house for Christmas, and you're anticipating and waiting. And no matter what you're doing, when that knock comes... On that door, or the doorbell rings, you jump up to answer the door. And then sometimes, of course, there's that time when you... Have you ever noticed this? That I think people watch the windows. And when you sit down for dinner, they ring the doorbell or not. Have you noticed this? The most inopportune times there... Did you just kill something? I hope he was saved. I mean, if you're going to kill something, you might as well pray for their salvation. But anyway, anyway, so, so I think people look inside the window sometime and just wait for the most inopportune moment to knock on the door. And sure enough, as you're about to put the fork to your mouth, there comes a knock on the door, the doorbell rings, and you kind of get a little bit tight and frustrated. Who is it? Now, at my house, there's kind of a deal. We got one of those doorbells, you know, and if you ring the back doorbell, you get a dong. If you ring the front bell, you get a ding dong. And the deal is, well, y'all know best uh, backdoor friends are best. And so, generally speaking, if it's the back door, at least we know it's generally somebody that we know. But the front doorbell rings. It's either a Jehovah Witness, all right, or somebody running for a political office, or the FedEx man. It's one of those three things if you come to the front door. But there's a different response when you're busy and you really don't want to answer the door. And there, there's that third time. And, and some of y'all have experienced this. It's when someone rings your doorbell or knocks on the door at about 1 o'clock in the morning. And generally speaking, it could be an emergency. But it could be somebody just playing a prank. And, and, and because you're usually asleep at that time, um, perhaps you're wake, awoken suddenly from your sleep. And there's that, that, that fear, that fear that comes. That fear that comes when you have that kind of knock on the door. Well, last week, when we looked at crosstalk, Jesus knocked on the door. Jesus knocked on the door. In fact, there's a scripture that really applies to those who are desiring fellowship, who all have a relationship with Jesus. But, you know, Jesus invited them back into fellowship, not relationship, but fellowship. It's found in Revelation 3.20. But we use it often trying to, to talk to folks about their need to let Jesus into their lives. And it's Revelation 3.20. And basically it says something like this. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any person hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and him with me, and I will sup with him. I will have fellowship with him. It's a great, great verse. Well, last week in Crosstalk, Jesus knocked on the door. And he did it by doing this. He said, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And he was literally praying for the very people who had nailed him on that Roman cross. And we, we made it so clear that even though Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them, that forgiveness was available to them, that forgiveness always demands a response. In other words, when Jesus knocked, you had to go to the door and respond. And so today, that's exactly what we want to look on. Look at how did the people at the cross respond? And in response to that, we hear some more words from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're back in Luke and chapter 23, and we want to look at the response. Now, I need to say this. You know, here's Jesus. Now, again, if I, as I study that verse just a little bit more this week, it appears that as, as they were driving the nails into the wrist of Jesus, he's praying. As they are driving the spikes through the wrist of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is praying, Father, forgive them. As they, as they hoisted him up on this cross beam here, and they're, they're lifting him up on a pole to hang this cross beam, and, and the, the pain of the nails, he's saying, Father, forgive them. As they taunt him, as they do all these different things to him, he is a continuous prayer of, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He just kept knocking and knocking and knocking, offering forgiveness to these people that were in the various world. And it was difficult for them. It was difficult for them, more difficult for him, but difficult for them. And the reason why is, is because, again, the Messiah, the king of the world and beyond, is hanging and he's just a bloody mess. He's naked, naked before the world. And he didn't look like the kind of person that you need to put your faith and trust in. He looked like a loser, like a failure, like a dying man, which he was. If, you, if there was a reporter there that day, perhaps his, his interview... His report would go something like this. And amazingly, these words were written some four or five hundred years before, three hundred years before the crucifixion occurred. Here's what that reporter would say. He has no form, in other words, he's not impressive, or nor majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And these are probably the most true prophetic view of words. And as one from whom men hid their faces, that's the bloody mess that was Jesus. That's the shame of Jesus. As one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So that's the man praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But he's knocking, and the question becomes, how would they, and more importantly today, how will you respond to the door? What we first look into, there's three or four worlds I want to point out. It's on your sermon sheet. The first is the religious world, the religious world. We find this in Luke 23, 35. 
The Bible says, the people stood watching. Now, it doesn't need a lot of commentary here, but it does. Because these are the people, many of them, many of them, they had to have seen the wondrous miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did. But when the pressure from the religious leaders and probably getting caught up in the momentum of the crucifixion, they were the ones who cried, crucify him, crucify him. The very ones that some of them who welcomed him into Jerusalem the week before with sounds of Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, they now are watching him die. And it's not a watch of sorrow. It's not a watch of grief. It's some twisted form of grisly entertainment. I mentioned this last week. They're gawking. You know, have you ever gone by a horrible traffic accident where there's a fatality or great wounds and we crane our neck to look and get every juicy detail? Have you ever seen a fire truck scream by your house and you jump in the car and you become a fire truck chaser and go to see the loss of someone's home as it's engulfed with flames? It's some kind of twisted entertainment. And that's what the people are doing. They're not filled with remorse. There's no indication that the people were at the cross, these same people were filled with remorse or grief. They just wanted to see what was happening. And that was their response to Christ knocking. And then, of course, there was in that religious world, not only, and by the way, oh, 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 and by the way, these people probably attended the temple every week. Oh, they got lots of scriptures on what God said. It just never changed their life. And then there's this, these religious leaders who were the gang leaders in this whole thing. And the Bible says, and even the leaders kept scoffing. And, and the, the structure of the Greek is they kept on and on and on. Have you ever been in a situation where a person went on and on and on? You want to go, let it go. <laughs> well, they would not let it go. On and on they scoffed him. And here are some of the words that they said that day. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. He saved others. Now, pause and think about that. The landscape of Galilee and around Jerusalem and those areas were filled with examples of him saving people. I mean, ask Jairus, whose daughter was dead and Jesus resurrected him. Ask blind Bartimaeus, who no longer is blind because the Lord Jesus opened his eyes. Uh, go and find Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus was dead and Jesus called them out of the tomb. Go find the men who were consumed with leprosy, but now they're back home with their family because they're healed. He saved others. The evidence that this was no mere mortal man is everywhere. And yet they don't see it. All they can do is say, he saved others. That's not enough. Blind eyes open, deaf ears open, dead people brought back to life, leprosy cleansed. That is not enough. We need something more. And what we need is the one thing he could not give. Let him save himself. The one thing Jesus couldn't do. Because, see, Jesus came, and Luke tells us in another place, Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. And he could not save himself from the cross and still save us. So what the religious leaders demanded was the one thing Jesus could not do because he had to be true to his calling. And his calling was to save you. Save you. And to save you. And it's crazy because you're going to see as we look at these other worlds, with the exception of the last one, and you'll understand when you get there, but the next two worlds we look at, the exact same thing is said. It's said, save yourself. Save yourself. The one thing they demanded, he could not do. And then he goes on and says, if this is God's Messiah and the chosen one. So the religious people, some were gawking and rubbernecking, and the leaders were scoffing and saying, oh, we saw what you did, but that's not enough. We just need to see a little bit more. And so you maybe you're here today, and that kind of describes you. Okay, God, I've seen evidence of you, but that's not enough. If you do this for me, I will. I'm just going to tell you right now, he can't do more than this. Amen. He can't do more than this. I mean, that forever shouts, not only that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was the sacrificial lamb of God and declares God's love for this world. Nothing can change that or be bigger than that. So that's the religious world. And then you've got the political world. You know, in the religious world, they saw a man who lived like no other. In the political world, we see a man dying like no other. Look, look what it says. Verse 36. The soldiers, the same ones who drove the nails, the soldiers also mocked him. Now remember, Jesus is knocking. Father, forgive them. What will the soldier, how will the soldiers respond? Well, the response is they mocked him. They came offering him sour wine, which is so ironic because it really is like they had this moment of compassion and said, hey, you sure you don't want some of the sour wine? It may make things a little bit better. But then the next breath, they said this, if you are the king of the Jews, that sign up there says you are, if you are the king of the Jews, here it is, save yourself. It's like the Roman soldiers are saying, hey, you say you're this great king. Well, there's one thing you can do that will prove you're the king. Get off of the cross. It's one thing Jesus couldn't do because he had to be true to himself. And he couldn't save himself and save us, you. So he stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross. And in this political world, the Romans certainly were a part of that. We see Pilate's little jab, I think. Verse 38, an inscription was above him, this is the king of the Jews. And notice he didn't, you know, they wanted to change to say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. He is the king of the Jews. And no truer statement was ever spoken. And there's never been a king like this one. There's never been a king like this one. A, a, a king who had the absolute power to come off the cross and chose not to. The king who had the absolute power to destroy every person who hurt him and chose not to. A king who chose to die for the people. And behind this inscription, there's so much going on. There's this huge battle going on. 
This was, this was so much more than the death of one man. This was so much more. There was a spiritual battle being waged. I still love the line from that song that we sing now with David, one of the newer songs, that Satan had thought he had won. And surely as Satan sees the Messiah, Jesus, this man hanging on the cross, he is saying, I have got this one because he is going to die. I wonder what the scene was in heaven. As the angels who never experienced grace, so probably didn't really understand grace, hung their heads in sorrow. As the one they had worshipped for millennia after millennia after millennia after millennia. As the one they had worshipped hangs naked on a Roman cross. Even God the Father, in just a little while, is going to turn his back on the Son and calls Jesus to cry out, My Father, why have you forsaken me? Pilate's jab. But in jabbing the Jews and saying, Oh, this is your king? Well, this is what we do to kings. Even Pilate's jab, God turned into victory. And then there's the underworld. The underworld. And this is just, this is just magnificent what this is. In verse 39, the Bible says, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And there it is again. This, this other criminal, this first criminal, cries out and says, Hey, if you're God, if you're the Messiah... Save yourself. And then he said, you might as well save us while you're at it. Us being the two thieves. Do you see the... Can you, can you pick up on the intensity, the emotional level of this? Where he says, one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Do you see the, the anger and the bitterness? You say you're the Christ. Then save yourself and us. He's just consumed with anger and bitterness. And I think ultimately somehow directs that anger and bitterness at the man in the middle. Blaming him somehow for all of this. Ultimately, whose fault was it he was on the cross? Well, I'm talking about the criminal. It was him. He had murdered men and... He was insurrectionist. He led rebellions against Rome. So, so he was there because of him. And yes, the Roman government took it as an opportunity to show all the other Jews, this is what we do to people who murder and lead rebellions. But he didn't blame himself. And he's really probably not too angry at Rome at this point. He just looks at the man in the middle and vomits this anger. And this bitterness. How incredible. And you've probably done this. Your marriage ends into divorce because you chose to have an affair. And yet you say, why did God do this to me? You decide to drink and drive and lose your job and your driver's license. And $10,000. Why did God allow this to happen? 
we choose to blame God in circumstances. We have a tendency to do that. He certainly did. But then there's another guy. And the Bible says, but the other answered, rebuking him. And interestingly, this is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes sickness, when he rebukes demons. This is the same word the thief uses this. He rebukes the other criminal and says, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? Dude, do you understand that We are going to die. You don't come off of the cross alive. Don't you fear God? Aren't you at a point where you understand where this punishment is going to go, that we're going to die today? Shouldn't you be fearing God rather than ragging God? He goes on. It's just, we are punished Justly. Do you see a difference? You saw nothing that said to the first criminal that said, I'm guilty, I deserve this. But the second guy says, We are being punished justly. In other words, well, in fact, he says it because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we've done. This guy says, I, to use religious terms, I have sinned, I know that I sinned, and I deserve what's about to happen. We need to come to that point. So which guy? Do you find yourself angry at God today? God didn't quite deliver like you thought he ought to? Or this other guy that says, you know what? I don't understand it all. All I know is, is that there's a God. And he does love me and care for me. And we get that because of what happens next. We understand that. I don't say that arbitrarily. This second criminal had something going on. And that's so cool because there wasn't a preacher. There wasn't an evangelist. There wasn't someone to to read the Old Testament to him. There wasn't someone to explain the Old Testament to him. It's just the Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit that worked in his life, in just a moment we're going to see this, is the same Holy Spirit works in our lives. Well, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. He understood somehow that the sinless was dying for the sinful. That the sinless was dying for the sinful. Again, how did, how did he figure that out, hanging on a Roman cross with nails through his wrists, struggling to breathe? It's just amazing God, amazing grace, amazing Holy Spirit, and a guy who somehow gets it. I can't figure out why people in Central Asia have the courage to trust Jesus. Because I'm so spoiled in America. If it rains, I don't want to come to church. Well, shoot, you follow the Lord Jesus Christ in Central Asia, and you're going to die. You're going to lose your family. But they figured out something we haven't. It is worth it. It is worth it. Well, that leads us to this graceful world. It's just, it's beautiful. 
In Luke 23, 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is huge. This is just huge. He didn't... He didn't have all the answers. Now, remember, he was a Jewish man. So he understood, he had certainly got some schooling on the prophecies of the Messiah and all of that. So everything he'd been taught about Messiah did not line up with Jesus. But somehow, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow, he knew that the crucifixion was not the end for this man. People nailed to Roman crosses, die, the end, game over. Somehow he figured out, in this case, that that man was not going to be the end. I don't think he believed necessarily that Jesus was going to jump off the cross. But he somehow just knew it wasn't game over for Jesus. How do you know that, Dwayne? Because he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom." What great faith. Now listen, there's someone here today on the radio or in this room, and you've not trusted Jesus. You've not trusted God because you don't have all the answers. You don't need all the answers. I've been following Christ now for, what, 35, 40 years? Since 1975. I've been a pastor for 34, and I don't have near the answers. I'll just tell you, I don't know. It's incredible. But you don't need the answers. All you need is faith. All you need is faith. And, and this guy, how, Dwayne, how big is this man's faith? Big enough to trust a dying king. Big enough to trust a dying king. All the circumstances said, this guy is going to die with me in a few minutes. But he had faith enough to believe it wasn't game over. Let that soak in. You know, let, let that just get into your heart. And Jesus said in verse 43, and don't underplay this. Don't underplay this. And he said, Jesus said to him, I assure you, I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, in answer to the person's prayer, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus' response was, today, you will be with me in paradise. He made the man an incredible promise. And if Jesus does anything, he keeps his promises. What an amazing set of words. Today, not next week, not in a millennia, not the resurrection. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, so what can we learn? What can we learn from the cross? And believe me, there's more than I will cover today. But what can we learn that will be practical for our lives? Well, first off is this. Lesson number one. Circumstances will draw you or drive you. Circumstances will draw you to God or drive you away from God. Now, let me say this. 
Christians, listen up. If you're, if you're a Jesus follower, God doesn't need a PR man. God doesn't need a public relations manager. We sometimes think, I think that's how we play God. You know, we have to make sure we make God sound good. We don't have to make God sound good because God is good. He stands on his own. He stands on his own. With that said, as circumstances come into our life, as Christ followers, let's make sure that we represent God well. You know, when things get a little difficult, again, being a professional whiner, and president of the Winers of America Club. Okay? I'm really good at whining. I've got a very... That's my, kind of like my spiritual gift. A gift of whining. But that doesn't do much for God's PR. If your God is so great, why do you whine all the time? If God is so great, why do you complain all the time? If God is so great, why don't you enjoy serving Him more? So just, he doesn't need us to be PR managers, but let's represent him well when our circumstances turn south. But now back to this guy. Back to this guy. Circumstances will draw you or drive you. Somebody said that circumstances are are 32 degrees. You're either going to fall or freeze, one of the two. In the first case, in the case of the first criminal... The, the circumstances that he was in drove him away from God. To, to vehemently, to vehemently, if you're the Christ, if you're the Christ, why don't you save yourself and us? He was so filled with anger and bitterness because of the circumstances. And yet in the second criminal, we see him drawn to God. The Bible says and teaches that God uses circumstances. You know, we see that in Job's life. We, we see that in, throughout really the whole Bible, that God uses circumstances for His purposes and for His glory. Maybe if you're going through a difficult time right now, maybe God's trying to draw you, help you to understand that you need Him. You need Him. And the choices are, you know, there's a great scripture in Ezekiel 33, 11. It says this. And this is, Ezekiel was a prophet back in the Old Testament. And it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. Now listen carefully. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. I want you to understand, now is an age of grace. Right now is an age of grace. And God speaks to you today and says, I have no pleasure in your death without Jesus. I have no pleasure. If you choose to die without me, that brings me no pleasure. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. God wants so much. How much? That he sent his son Jesus to die on that cross. God wants so much for you to turn from your sin and live. And live. Your circumstances may try to drive you away. But if you're here today and you've been in this church for so long and so many times, you've heard this gospel message and you know you need Jesus, please today. In fact, Jesus, the Word of God says, God says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is a, I know it's a prophecy to Israel, but you can put your name there. 
Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, Dwayne or David or Brent or Joe or Sally or Susie? Why will you die? Now, I need to be honest with you. Today's an age of grace. But after the last heartbeat and sometimes before, for you it might be over. Because He is a just God. And if you die with your sins not under the blood of Jesus Christ, if your sins not been atoned for, you will face God as judge. And there will be a, the wrath of God to answer for. That's the price of unforgiven sin. It's not God's mean. It's true. He simply cannot allow unforgiven sin. And you'll spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But he did everything he could for that not to be the case by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die. So your circumstances will drive you or draw you. Secondly, it's this. It's not too late. This should give every person, every sinner here today hope. It's not too late. But there is a warning built into this. Because I know, I know. Every week I think I hear people, I preach to people and they listen on the radio and, and somehow this thought comes to your mind. There's no hope for me. I, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. There, listen, listen. There is no way that God could love me. There is no... You talk about this grace thing, but I'm telling you, God's grace is not deep enough for this guy, this girl, this student. You do not know what I have done. And I think I said it last week, but if not, I'll say it this week. I don't know, don't need to know, but God knows and he declares his grace is sufficient for you. It's not too late. Today is the day of grace for you. Today is the day of grace for you. Paul, and again, Paul was a Christ hater, okay, and then met Jesus and became a Christ lover. And he wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, and here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Working together with him, and by the way, that's the church, we work together with God, working together with Him, we also appeal to you, we urge you, we beg you, don't receive God's grace in vain. Don't say no to God's grace. For He says, I heard you in an acceptable time, and I helped you in the day of salvation. I heard you today, and I want to help you today in the day of salvation. Look now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. What's the warning? The warning is this. I know people have a tendency to say, I'll get saved later. What if there's not a later? What if there's not a later? That's why he says, today is the day of salvation. Some of you have come week after week after week after week. You've listened on the radio week after week after week. And you said, another day, another day, another day. What if tomorrow there is not another day? What if next hour there's not another hour? We urge you, we beg you, trust Jesus Christ today. Because 
it's not too late. But one day it will be. If you're here today, you've got now. But one day it will be too late. And you don't know when. Some of you students, some of you guys in your middle ages, I will serve God, I'll commit to God one day when I'm older. And you know and I know there's not always an older. Today's the day. The third thing is this, the lesson we get. is Jesus plus nothing minus nothing. This scripture causes a lot of consternation for people who want to add to grace. They want to say, you've got to be baptized to be saved. You've got to prove yourself and perform for God to be saved. You, you've got to go to church. You've got to go to church you know, for, for a year to prove you're saved. There's a real problem here. Because this dude didn't have a chance to get baptized, go to church, or do anything good. He's fixing to die. And they've tried all kinds of ways to explain it away. But the bottom line, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't add anything to what Jesus Christ has already done. Whether it be your baptism, whether it be your church attendance, whether it be your good works, whether it be your generosity, you can't... Listen, you add anything to the recipe of salvation and you spoil the recipe. You spoil the recipe. You can't add anything to it. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved that same Paul guy writing in the, to a church in Galatia said this. We who are Jews by birth and not... I like to put a little tongue-in-cheek here. We who are Jews by birth and not, in quotes, Gentile sinners, know that no one is justified by the works of the law. In other words, no one can be made right before God by the works of the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ, Jesus, so that we might be justified. We might be made right before God. In Job 9.2, Job asks a question. Job was, we think Job was the oldest book in the entire Bible. So that long ago, a guy named Job says, How, are they, how, are, how is a man justified before God? How is a man justified before God? And God answers many times, but answers in Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, in chapter 2 and verse number 4, and it says this, By faith, a man is justified. That's the reason that second criminal had no time to be baptized or anything else. That's why he could be made the promise. Because he believed. And today, if we're willing to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can have the same promise. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, if you will believe by faith, by faith you're justified, by faith you're made right, you can have the assurance of heaven. He goes on and says this, Paul does, so we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Now listen carefully. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. You can't be made right for, for heaven with good works, baptism, religion, church, stopping this, starting that. You are saved, forgiven, redeemed.
by believing in Jesus Christ and turning from your sin. Plus nothing, minus nothing. The last thing is this. And this, this, should, be a, this should be a real hope to every believer. Not every person, but to every believer in Jesus Christ. And that is this. Leave here, arrive there. Leave here, arrive there. Do you understand what happened that day? Let me help you. From everything we know from Scripture, and we know this because when they came to break the legs of Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they pierced his side just to to make sure. So Jesus, the other guys were still alive. Jesus went first. Jesus died first. So sometime after that, they came along and they took a a rod or a bar or something and they broke the criminal's legs. And the reason why is because they would push up with their legs to breathe and then fall back down. Well, with both legs being broken, they could no longer push up and they quickly suffocated. So what happened that day for that particular man who said, remember me when you come to your kingdom? And Jesus said, I will. You'll be with me in paradise today. Sometimes shortly after the death of Jesus, he stopped breathing. And Paul teaches us and says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that criminal nailed to a cross upon his last breath was set free and ushered into the presence of of the Lord Jesus Christ who had just got there. And I can only imagine Jesus said something, excuse me for reading between the lines, welcome home. Welcome home. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6-8, So we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. If we're here, we're not there. Verse 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when your loved one or you die in faith in Jesus Christ, know this, there's no soul sleep. You don't go out there and lay in decay waiting for something to happen. When your last heartbeat comes, When your last breath occurs, you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So, to wind this thing up, he knocked last week. He's knocking today. Some people gawked and rubbernecked. Perhaps today would be Waiting to see in how long before we eat lunch. Religious leaders mocked him and scoffed him again. If you're the Messiah, come down off that cross. The one thing he couldn't do. The Roman soldiers and the political party, we see them doing their religious, I'm sorry, doing their political thing. They scoffed him. Come down off the cross and we'll believe. One criminal said, if you're that Messiah, Why don't you save yourself and us? But one man, one man heard 
the knock and responded. And that day, he was in paradise, in heaven, with the Lord Jesus Christ. An old song was written back in, in uh, 1905, 100, what, 112 years ago. And the chorus goes like this. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. And one day you will be asking, what will Jesus do with me? Paul again said, today is the day of salvation. So if God's been speaking to your heart, speaking your life, you know, I think you know what I mean by that. If, if this has been happening, you, you may have figured this out. That thing in your heart, you, you need to do something about this. If God's been speaking to your heart, my friend Brent's going to be standing down front. And we want to invite you to come and take Brent by the hand and say, okay, I've got, I've got questions. I'm not even saying I, I don't have all the answers. I know I don't. I don't even know what questions to ask. But I want to know that when I die, I go to heaven. And I want to know how that can happen in my life. And we have some men, women, who will be glad to share that with you. You can leave here knowing today that your sins are forgiven and that you're going to heaven. We invite you to come. Dwayne, does it have to happen like that? No. You can grab us after church. You can call the office. You can find something. You want to talk to a preacher? Find somebody you know is a Christ follower. It's evidence in their lives. And ask them how they know they're going to heaven. But let it happen for you. And if you're here today and you know, you know there are circumstances in your life, and you may be a Christ follower, but those circumstances you know have driven you further away from God. Maybe it's time to come home. I know you don't understand why God allowed this and why God you know, allowed that. I don't understand. I mean, I'm, I'm a professional preacher guy, and I don't understand. But again, I, learning, I don't have to have all the answers. I just got to trust him. I just got to trust him. That's all. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you very much for this privilege of sharing. And I want to ask, Father, what I may have made confusing, that the Holy Spirit would straighten it out. And Holy Spirit, that you would draw men and women and students and children to yourself today. Your desire is that we not perish, but that we live. And that's why you allowed and endorsed and, and ordained the cross and the death of your son. That men, women, and children could come in a relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to hearts and draw people to Jesus Christ today. Father, if we're wrestling with our circumstances, help us to trust you no matter what. We don't have all the answers. We confess that. But we're willing to trust you. So Jesus, I pray for that. Have your way in this time. It's your time. And Jesus, I pray in your name.